Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Dr. Peter Davies, a former teacher and inspector of schools in the United Kingdom, visited Yale University's Institute of Sacred Music to discuss his research examining Anglican liturgies. This presentation is entitled The Lion, the Kiwi, and the Sacred Cow, a look at contemporary language in English liturgies. On behalf of ISM, I would like to welcome this afternoon's symposium speaker, Dr. Peter Davies. Dr. Davies was formerly a school teacher and an inspector of schools in the United Kingdom, and his subject area is English. Uh, it was from this expertise that he completed doctoral work on the language of the New Zealand Prayer Book of uh, 1989 and that of Common Worship 2000 of the Church of England. And his research uh, is published under the title Alien Rights, a Critical Examination of Contemporary English in Anglican Liturgies, published by Ashgate Publishing. Yes, the very same publishing house that has published Professor Garrigan and my recent books. This afternoon, Dr. Davies will address us on the topic, the lion, the kiwi, and the sacred cow, a critical look at contemporary language in English liturgies. So please join me in welcoming him. Thank you very much. This is my first visit to the United States, and I thought that I would need some kind of introduction to the liturgy of worship in the United States. So yesterday in my hotel room, I tuned in to Jimmy Swaggart, and <laughs> uh, I managed to, well, in fact, I was quite fascinated. It, it was sort of very beguiling, and I kept it on for about three quarters of an hour. I didn't take my credit card out, I managed to switch off. But after that, I felt that I needed an antidote, so I went to high mass at Christchurch. And I'm very glad to, to see David Cobb here. Uh, and uh, what I, I, I will say about that, I would have said, had he not been here, it was a, a very uplifting and, and a wonderful experience. Um, so it was an antidote. In 1960, it was possible to visit Anglican churches in all parts of the English-speaking world and take part in worship services which were remarkably similar. They were all based on the 1662 version of the Book of Common Prayer. There were some minor variations. For instance, in Australia and New Zealand, some parts of the 1928 prayer book were used. And this book, as you probably know, was not authorized for use in England. But on the whole, the language of worship was a specialized form of Tudor-Stuart English, which had evolved in the 16th and 17th centuries and had stuck there. Then, over the next 40 years, a remarkable development took place. After three centuries of very little change, the language of liturgy suddenly became contemporary. Of course, this change occurred also in the Roman Catholic Church and in many Protestant denominations over roughly the same period. But in my research and in this paper, I concentrate on what happened in two countries in the Anglican Communion, England and New Zealand. The first official Anglican worship book to use the words you and your 
referring to God was the New Zealand experimental liturgy of 1966, closely followed by an Australian liturgy a few months later. At the risk of oversimplification, I would say that there were three phases in the process of the development of liturgy in contemporary language. Pamphlet, prayer book, resource pack. The production of pamphlets took place in the 60s and 70s. Then it was decided that it was time to stop experimenting and make a commitment to an actual prayer book. And these are my texts. My principal texts are the Book of Common Prayer, 1662, which there's my old copy of that, the Alternative Service Book, produced for use in the Church of England, 1980, no longer legal, <laughs> the New Zealand, A New Zealand Prayer Book, He Karakia Mihinari O Awatiaroa, which means A New Zealand Prayer Book in Maori, <laughs> uh, in 1989, Common Worship, Services and Prayers for the Church of England, 2000. The Church of England, sorry, the ASB, the Alternative Service Book, and the New Zealand Prayer Book are books. The Church of England's Common Worship looks like a book, but it's, intended, it's not intended to be held in the hand by worshippers. You won't find this in the pews in an English church. In my terms, it's a resource pack. The Anglican Church in New Zealand hasn't produced an equivalent resource pack and probably never will, because it doesn't have the money. But in 2002, the church published a template for worship, giving guidance on the production of homegrown liturgies. <coughs> homegrown, but they, are all, they all, or they all should do, contain only the material which has been authorized by General Synod. For many Anglican worshippers, the transition to contemporary language has been far too rapid. It has been judged to be premature, lacking in consultation, and even unnecessary. There are societies in England, New Zealand, Australia, Canada, and the United States dedicated to the preservation of the usage of the 1662 Book of Common Prayer. I don't know how strong this movement is in this country, but in England it is vociferous and quite effective. This is partly why, for this paper, I have chosen the title, The Lion, the Kiwi, and the Sacred Cow. The lion is a heraldic device which is used very commonly to represent England. And in my terms, I'm using the lion to represent the Church of England. The kiwi is a flightless bird. <coughs> There's I've only just realized that there is a significance in the fact that it can't fly, but never mind, we'll, we'll uh, ignore that. Uh, this is a bird which is endemic to New Zealand, and it is very often used as a symbol for that country, and here I'm using it to represent the church, the Anglican church of Aotearoa, New Zealand and Polynesia. The sacred cow is not just the various prayer book societies, but a particular mindset which in its most extreme form rejects all modern liturgies in the conviction that 
only the 1662 prayer book does the job. <laughs> now, this is, this is my definition of, well, not my definition, this is the Brewer definition of a sacred cow. Any institution, long-cherished practice, custom, etc., treated as immune from criticism, modification, or abolition. And I thought this was perfect as a description of that particular mindset that I've referred to, so I'm very grateful to Brewer for that uh, particular um, definition. Before I started my inquiry, it seemed to me that there were several important questions to be asked about this transition. First, why did it take so long for the churches of the Anglican Communion to introduce contemporary language? Secondly, how has the introduction of contemporary language been received by regular worshippers? And thirdly, to what extent can the language of the new worship services be described as truly contemporary? The answer to the first question, why did it take so long, is complex, and I can't do justice to it here. I shall restrict myself to two observations. First, the desire to produce liturgy in contemporary English did not suddenly arise in the 20th century, but has been a constant presence since the 16th century. After all, Cranmer himself wanted to replace the Latin usage with language which was, as he put it, understanded of the people. In 1689, less than three decades after the introduction of the 1662 prayer book, the Church of England, together with some of the dissenting sects, formed a committee with the intention of revising it. Humphrey Prido, Dean of Norwich, published a pamphlet which he called A Letter to a Friend and intended it for the committee. In it, he suggested that the liturgy of any church needed to be revised about once every 30 years for this reason. For the language in which it is wrote, being constantly in fluxu, in every age some words that were in use in the former grow obsolete, and some phrases and expressions formerly in grace and fashion through disuse become uncouth and ridiculous. <laughs> and always to continue these in our liturgy without correction would be to bring a disparagement upon the whole and expose to contempt the worship of God among us. That was Humphrey Prido writing in 1689. The committee did produce a revision of the Book of Common Prayer. It was called the Liturgy of Comprehension, but it never received official approval. After the Toleration Act in 1689, the dissenters lost interest. Well, why should they continue to take part in, in, in such a committee when that particular act gave them permission to act to worship how they liked? So the king, William III, dissolved the committee. My second observation on why it took so long is that whenever the intention to revise the liturgy rose to the surface, it was overtaken and therefore suppressed by political events. For instance, the wars in Ireland in the, six, in the 17th century and in the 18th century, the American War of Independence, closely followed by the French Revolution. And in the 19th century, controversy over ritualism and what the evangelicals called creeping papism in the Church of England. The answers to the second and third questions are closely linked. 
I remind you that the second question is, how has the modern language been received? And the third question is, is the language of modern liturgies truly contemporary? A linguistic analysis of the worship books in question shows that although the intention seems to have been to produce liturgies written in modern English, or in a phrase which was frequently used, a worthy contemporary idiom, the language actually produced was of variable quality. Some of it was neither worthy nor contemporary. <laughs> in fact, much of it is written in a sort of hybrid dialect, combining characteristics of different periods of English usage. The modernization of the language of liturgy, it was discovered sometimes too late, is a far more complex matter than simply changing thou and thee to you and your, eliminating such words as beseech and propitiation and introducing inclusive language. To answer the second question, how have regular worshippers received the introduction of contemporary language in liturgy, I use the techniques of questionnaire and interview in England and New Zealand. And these are my main findings. Now this first main finding, I, I would like to emphasize that this, this is really very important. Most worshippers have successfully made the transition to contemporary language. So whatever I say for the next 40 minutes, please bear this in mind. That, that is a most important finding. <clears throat> the um, second finding is interesting in that uh, the evidence of the, of the interview shows not that New Zealand people are more adventurous and less hidebound by tradition than English people, though this in a general sense may be true, <laughs> but that the quality of the language offered in the New Zealand book is better than that in the English books. The third finding shows, among other things, that that which is familiar from childhood has an extraordinarily powerful hold on our emotional life. Now the fourth finding provokes another question. The fourth finding is this. For a significant minority, contemporary language is unacceptable as a medium for worship. Why, in that case, is contemporary language unacceptable to many worshippers? Is it a matter of principle that given the matchless beauty of the 1662 book, nothing else will do? Or is it connected with the fifth finding, even to those who are in favor of contemporary liturgical language, much of it is clumsy, embarrassing, and banal? If so, what should contemporary liturgical language look like? To find an answer to this question, on the fourth page of the questionnaire, respondents were invited to make any observations they felt were important. These written responses provided valuable evidence, and I was able to follow this up in interviews. I asked the chairman of the New Zealand Liturgical Commission, which had been responsible for the composition of the New Zealand prayer book, how he and his colleagues understood their task. He said that this understanding had changed over a period of several years. Gradually, it became clear to them that they were not so much adapting old formularies as composing new ones. They were involved in, as he put it, the struggle to find ways of communicating that are rich 
and that open up new vistas of understanding, using language in which each word is a familiar word and not part of some special language. Other interviewees, both clergy and lay, said that the language of liturgy needed to have a close relationship to the social and cultural milieu in which it was used. But this is not to say that the language of liturgy needs to be simplified or dumbed down. In fact, the question of comprehensibility is extremely complex. Opinions differed as to whether the 1662 Book of Common Prayer was difficult to understand, or indeed, any more difficult to understand than the modern liturgies. In many discussions, it emerged that the language of liturgy has much in common with that of poetry. Both varieties can be difficult, elusive, indirect, and figurative. In their struggle to express meaning that is evanescent, spiritual, and, in a word which is often used, transcendent. Labels such as easy to understand, or beautiful, or elegant, or dignified, prove to be of little use in describing liturgical language. Gradually, two notions emerged, and they can be summarized in the words integrity and authenticity. So, two requirements of liturgical language appear to be these. It should have integrity with the community it involves, and it should provide authentic expression to feeling and emotion. The phrase authentic expression of feeling and emotion is taken from an essay by the American and subsequently English poet T.S. Eliot, in which he puts up a strong argument for the use of contemporary language in poetry and rejects the idea that for dignity and resonance, a poet needs to revert to language of a previous era. If we accept Eliot's argument that that Eliot's argument can also be applied to liturgy, then what does language have to be or to do in order to possess both integrity and authenticity? Perhaps I could approach this question in an easier negative way. Unfortunately, there are plenty of examples in the worship books in question of expressions which somehow fail to fulfill these requirements. I've picked out some expressions from the Eucharistic prayers of common worship which have attracted attention. Most of these comments are taken from a database compiled by the Church of England Liturgical Commission in response to the trialing of some of the common worship material in 1997. In Eucharistic prayer A, <clears throat> the expression, giving him to be born of a woman, was felt, as one person put it, to be too gynecological. <clears throat> prayer C, uh, incidentally, there are prayers A to H in common worship, so there's plenty of choice. Prayer C is the most conservative of the Eucharistic prayers and is the one which shows least departure from the language of 1662. It contains this expression, we are unworthy through our manifold sins. Now, the word manifold, meaning many or various, is confined to specialized usages. To some, it has inescapable associations with the internal combustion engine, <laughs> as in the exhaust manifold or the induction manifold. 
one of the extended prefaces refers to Jesus as this, for you are the builder of the city that is to come. One person said she couldn't help thinking of Milton Keynes. <laughs> now, I can see that some people know about Milton Keynes, but others may not. Uh, I should explain that Milton Keynes is a new town built to a specific design in the 1960s. Not unlike Yale, really. <coughs> to, to English people, it has the reputation of being bland, uniform, and boring. In the original draft of prayer F, God was said to have placed us in the Garden of Delights. Some respondents said that this put them in mind of a Chinese restaurant. <laughs> or an East, Eastern harem. In the subsequent published version, um, that this, this was a consultation exercise and actually the, the liturgical commission did take note of this. So in the subsequent published version, this expression was altered to the garden of your delight. Is it different? Well, yes, it is. More than 20 respondents objected to this expression, bursting from the tomb in prayer F. This was said by some to be too dramatic or journalistic. In prayer D, the expression death-defying, no, I haven't got that on, uh, <coughs> on the system, death-defying, summoned up the image for one respondent of Christ performing a daredevil stunt, like crossing Niagara Falls on a tightrope. Later, this was changed to defying death, he rose again. It's interesting to think about the difference between death-defying and defying death. As with all these expressions, it's a matter of their associative or connotative meaning, rather than their denotative meaning. These expressions illustrate what poets have always known, that the composer of a text may intend a particular meaning, but the composer has no control over what meanings the reader or hearer will infer from the text, especially in another time and another cultural context. My next group of illustrations is taken from the various collections of modern collects. The collect for Advent 2 in common worship starts like this. <clears throat> o Lord, raise up, we pray, your power and come among us and with great might succor us. On this, a clergyman from an inner city parish commented, in this area there is only one type of succor. <coughs> I was going to spell it, but I don't, I see I don't need to. <coughs> when, I, when I used this, uh, this example in a talk in Dublin two years ago, one university professor commented that this vicar was being lazy. It was his responsibility, she said, to teach his congregation the meaning of the word sucker. Again, the question arises, what additional meaning does the word sucker convey that is not conveyed by the word help? I'm now going to spend several minutes on the language of one utterance. And it is the collect for the fifth Sunday of Easter in common worship, 
and in the Irish prayer book of 2004, it is used as the collect for Easter day. So here's the first line. <clears throat> we need go no further than these two words to see that this is the beginning of a piece of religious discourse. The construction, adjective plus noun in direct address, is almost entirely restricted to religious usage. It occurs also at the beginning of a formal letter, dear sir, and in an English law court, the, the way in which a judge is addressed as my lord, but in hardly any other context. As this is the start of a collect, we might expect the next word to be who. Again, a use of the relative clause, which is typical of religious language. But before I move on to the next line, there is something to be said about the vocabulary here. The Book of Common Prayer, 1662, has 90 collects, and 47% of them refer to God as Almighty, sometimes used on its own, and sometimes combined with everlasting or eternal. This traditional way of addressing God at the start of a collect is replicated in the Alternative Service Book and Common Worship. In fact, in both of these books, God's almightiness receives even more prominence than it does in the Book of Common Prayer. In Common Worship, 55% of the collects start with the expression, Almighty God. In the Irish Prayer Book of, of 2004, the percentage rises to 58. Should we be concerned about God's overwhelming almightiness as expressed in the collects? One person who is concerned is Janet Morley, herself the writer of several collections of collects. In 1994, she wrote this. To release ourselves from the habit of always using certain predictable and perhaps scarcely noticed formulae for the beginning of a prayer may free the imagination to explore the unimaginable ways in which God reaches us. On the same subject, Lawrence Bartlett, the chair of the Australian Liturgical Commission, suggests that liturgical laziness can produce dull repetition, which does scant justice to the revelation of God. Even so, we find in the Australian prayer book, which his commission produced in 1995, that 38% of the collects start with Almighty God. On the other side of the Tasman Sea, the approach is quite different. In the New Zealand prayer book, there are three and sometimes four collects provided for each Sunday. At least one of these is very different from the Cranmerian pattern. In these shorter collects, there are 55 different ways in which God is addressed. To give you an idea of the variety, here are some of them. And these are all first lines. God of hope, son of God, child of Mary, Jesus, light of the world, God of the desert, God of the unexpected, gentle father, Jesus crucified, despised, and suffering, good shepherd of the sheep, word of God sharper than a two-edged sword, God the mother and father of us all. To return to the common worship collect for the fifth Sunday of Easter, then here is the next phrase. Well, actually, this is the Irish version. Through your only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. 
you have overcome death and opened to us the gate of everlasting life. The common worship version, as I've noted here, is who have. Who, through your only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, have, etc. But the Irish committee decided that they would get rid of the relative clause there. Otherwise, the collect is exactly the same. <clears throat> there are two features of 16th century English here. The use of the relative clause, which, as I say, the Irish committee decided to do without, and the word only begotten. The collect continues with the petition. Grant that, as by your grace going before us, you put into our minds good desires, so by your continual help we may bring them to good effect. Here we have two grammatical constructions which, though common in 16th century prose, hardly ever occur in modern English. The use of the imperative grant, followed by that, and the correlative conjunctions, as this, so, that. This last was used by Cranmer as an English equivalent of a Latin construction, which he copied from the Serum Rite. Sick, this, ut, that. Similarly, the expression, as by your grace going before us, is a rendering of Cranmer's, as by thy special grace preventing us. Preventing there is the now obsolete meaning of the word prevent, which comes from the Latin priveniri, to go before. So it's a way of solving the problem, but whether it is a, a very good way for contemporary English is another matter. Finally, we have the ending of the collect. Through Jesus Christ, our risen Lord, who is alive and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. This long Trinitarian ending is included in all the common worship collects. The rubric says it can be omitted, but not in services of Holy Communion. The Bishop of Portsmouth, a member of the Church of England Liturgical Commission, justified the use of this long ending. Following the same words again and again, he said, embeds them in the consciousness of the congregation. He calls this process iteration and suggests it has a long history in Anglican liturgical language. Janet Morley has a different view. She calls it padding and suggests that the repetition of the same ending for every collect simply goes in one ear and out the other. The chorus of disapproval expressed in the Anglican press when common worship was being debated suggests that very many clergy and lay people agree with Janet Morley. Subsequently, the liturgical commission has approved a set of alternative collects, most of which omit this long ending. It's not surprising that the language of the collects has proved to be controversial. Cranmer's collects are valued as succinct expressions of Christian faith. In 1902, John Dowden referred to their artistic merits and literary beauty. In 1996, Dermot McCulloch, in his biography of Cranmer, had no doubt, as he said, that these jeweled miniatures, as he called them, are one of the chief glories of the Anglican liturgical commission, that liturgical tradition. In attempting to preserve the cadences of Cranmer's prose in contemporary language, the writers of the common worship collects were undertaking a difficult task. The collects attracted a lot of criticism when they first appeared. 
and were one of the main reasons for the accusation that the Commission had capitulated to the prayer book lobby. But they were no more pleasing to the members of the prayer book society, many of whom regarded them with contempt. In 2001, an editorial in the prayer book society's journal, Faith and Heritage, dismissed the language of the whole of common worship as bland, banal, and forgettable. The short collects of the New Zealand book show a different approach. First, here's a comparison of two collects for Ascension Day. This is the common worship collect for Ascension Day. Grant, we pray, almighty God, that as we believe your only begotten Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, to have ascended into the heavens, so we in heart and mind may also ascend and with him continually dwell, who is alive, etc., the Trinitarian ending. <clears throat> this collect was too much for one inner city vicar, who wrote in her response, can we have something which is less crudely sky-journeying? Uh, to another, it was a perpetuation of the three-tier universe. And here is the New Zealand shorter collect for Ascension Day. The heavens are open wide, since Jesus, our brother, our redeemer, has entered through the veil. We thank you for his new and living way, by which we join in the unnumbered millions who are with you forever. When I read this to an audience in Dublin, there was some derision at the word through the veil. This is indeed mysterious, without at least a prior knowledge of Luke 23, verse 45, where at the moment of Jesus' death, the veil of the temple was rent in the midst. But does this phrase, through the veil, need to be explained to be effective in the context of worship? Is the question, what does it mean, as impertinent here as it would be applied to a poem by Walt Whitman or Ted Hughes. What the American poet Billy Collins says about his students' approach to poetry can, I think, also be applied to liturgy. His poem, Introduction to Poetry, begins, I ask them to take a poem and hold it up to the light, like a color slide. And the last verse reads, But all they want to do is tie the poem to a chair with rope and torture a confession out of it. <laughs> they begin beating it with a hose to find out what it really means. The evidence of my interviews and questionnaires suggests that the language of the collects is a focal point for the convergence of different understandings of the functioning of liturgical language. The New Zealand short collects pr sometimes provoke the observation that they're not proper collects. By this it is meant that they do not follow the five-fold structure established by Cranmer. That is, the address, the attribute of God, the petition, the consequence, and the Trinitarian ending. Or, that they do not carry evocations of the 1662 Book of Common Prayer, or that they fail to express any feeling of centuries-old tradition of Anglican worship, or simply that, by being so short, they're over before you have time to think about them. Finally, I'd like to return to the two requirements of liturgical language. 
So far, I've concentrated on the negative aspects of common worship. In trying to identify what it is that determines the characteristics of a worthy contemporary idiom, I've had to wrestle with the notion of subjectivity, the assumption <coughs> held by many that quality in liturgical language is a matter of personal preference, that what works for one person is embarrassingly banal for another. While there is some truth in this assertion, it can also be said that there are many examples of modern liturgical language which, on the evidence of my questionnaires and interviews, have attracted a wide range of favorable comment. For example, the image of Jesus opening wide his arms for us on the cross was mentioned many times as particularly moving and appropriate in the context of Eucharistic prayer. This line, which originally occurred in the apostolic tradition of Hippolytus, is used in the Alternative Service Book Prayer 3 and several times in Common Worship and the New Zealand Prayer Book. New Zealand respondents and interviewees generally expressed a liking for the shorter collects in the New Zealand book. But there is one prayer which attracted a great deal of favorable comment, even from those who said they preferred traditional liturgical language. And it's a post-communion prayer which starts Father of All. <clears throat> now I had thought that it would be in the 1979 American book, but it isn't. So, there it is. Do, do you know this at all? Is it familiar to you? No? Well, obviously you know it, Brian. <coughs> Father of all, we give you thanks and praise. That This is a post-communion prayer, okay? Right at the end of the service. Father of all, we give you thanks and praise that when we were still far off, you met us in your son. I'm sorry, I'm not speaking into the microphone. Father of all, we give you thanks and praise that when we were still far off, you met us in your Son and brought us home. Dying and living, he declared your love, gave us grace, and opened the gate of glory. May we who share Christ's body live his risen life. We who drink his cup bring life to others. We whom the Spirit lights give light to the world. Keep us firm in the hope you have set before us, so we and all your children shall be free, and the whole earth live to praise your name. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. What characteristics does this prayer have which account for its popularity amongst lay people and clergy, young and old, New Zealanders and English? Even stalwarts of the Prayer Book Society are prepared to concede that this prayer has some merit. <laughs> First, it uses vocabulary which is familiar but not casual. Many of the words carry associations of the human family, father, son, home, love, children. Secondly, its syntax, although highly formal, is that of modern contemporary English. Thirdly, like much modern poetry, its language is rich in metaphor and symbol. In the line, you met us in your son and brought us home, the prayer echoes the biblical story of the loving father. Above all, the prayer shows that in order to write prayers in a worthy contemporary idiom, it is not necessary to attempt to recreate the cadences of Cranmer or to fall back on the vocabulary and syntax of the past. In an article published in 2001, the writer Jean Mayland commended the prayer and contrasted it with what she saw as the generally overcautious approach 
adopted by the compilers of common worship. She wrote this. I longed for us to continue the kind of exploration begun by David Frost in his post-communion prayer. We needed to retrieve evocative images from the spirituality of the past, to supplement biblical images, and above all, to discover new ways of imaging and describing God, which nurture the understanding of women and men in our world today. These words echo the sentiments of many of my interviewees and those who wrote comments on the questionnaires. But this prayer was written nearly 40 years ago. Eventually, it will, seem, it will begin to seem tired and outdated. The search for ways of imaging and describing God needs to be a continuous one. It is a search rather like what T.S. Eliot in his poem East Coker called the intolerable wrestle with words and meanings. Who are the modern wrestlers? Is their work going to find its way into the language of official synodically approved liturgies? Now, I should like to end by taking the risk of going outside my area of expertise and pick out a phrase from the Maori language liturgy of the New Zealand prayer book. After Christianity had been brought to the Maori people in the early years of the 19th century, Maori language scholars and clergy concentrated on the task of rendering the language of the 1662 Book of Common Prayer and the King James Bible into Maori. It was only in the 1970s when there was a revival of interest in Maori culture that they realized they didn't have to do this. In the New Zealand prayer book, there is a Eucharistic liturgy entitled Thanksgiving and Praise with Maori on the left-hand side and English on the right. After the confession and absolution, the minister and the people say this. Now I'm going to attempt to chant this because in the Maori liturgy, it's usually all chanted. So it sounds something like this. Kote karaite te po herenga waka, whakapaingia te atua totatau kai hanga, whakapaingia te atua totatau kai taurima, whakapaingia te atua totatau kai unga ke te au whanui. The English equivalent, printed on the right-hand side, is this. We shall all be one in Christ, one in our life together. Praise to God who has created us. Praise to God who has accepted us. Praise to God who sends us into the world. But the first line of this prayer in Maori has an idea which is not conveyed by the English. In fact, this first line here which is not really a translation. It is an English equivalent, but not a translation. The other three lines are translation. So that first line contains this phrase, this, this idea. Christ, karaiti, which is a transli transliteration into Maori of the word Christ, is the mooring post, herenga, to which several canoes, waka, are tied. So unity in Christ is conveyed by the image of several canoes being moored or hitched to a single post, being gently rocked together in the sparkling, peaceful water. There is also at least one other layer of meaning. The word waka, literally canoe, also has the association of family or community, derived from the traditional belief 
that the ancestors of the Maori people arrived in New Zealand in their canoes, or waka, after a long journey from the mythical land of Hawaiki. Hawaiki is in the Tokelau or Cook Islands in the middle of the, uh, of the Pacific Ocean. Nothing to do with Hawaii. <clears throat> in Maori mythology, when a person dies, they return in their waka on a spiritual journey back to Hawaiki. So the phrase heranga waka in this Eucharistic prayer is rich in its associations with the pre-Christian spiritual tradition. The compilers of the Maori language liturgy were responding to the challenge of seeking new ways of imaging and describing God. In this, they released themselves from the burden of imitating Cranmer and drew upon treasures, taonga, the Maori word for treasures, which had existed for centuries in their own spiritual tradition. Thank you. Dr. Peter Davies published Alien Rites, a Critical Examination of Contemporary English in Anglican Liturgies. For more information about this year's tournament, or for more information on the Yale Institute of Sacred Music, please visit yale.edu ism. This was recorded on March 5, 2007.